0: amen good morning to you if you have your bibles this morning of course i hope that you do i invite you to turn with me again to the great book of nehemiah that we have been journeying in for a little time now not too long i believe this is week seven in nehemiah and we are now turning to chapter five Uh, as we're going to see things will take a sharp turn from chapter four to chapter five it's been kind of a, a roller coaster if you will Uh, In the book of Nehemiah so far, uh, ups and downs all along the way, Uh, moments of excitement, moments of dread and fear. Um, Even in chapter 4, it was kind of split. Uh, The first part of chapter 4 that Adam preached a couple weeks ago, we see great opposition come to those who are rebuilding the wall. In the last week, as the work resumes, even in the midst of opposition uh, and the enemies at the door, we see this great unity amongst God's people as they um, embark and embrace the call to rebuild the wall. But now things will take a sharp turn. We're going to see the people of God go from unity to a large degree, some disunity in the community. So how's that? From unity to disunity in the community. You're welcome. Uh, from an external enemy to an internal enemy. We've seen so far this uh, the enemy be external, be from uh, Sambalat and uh, Tobiah and others who have uh, wanted and desired uh, harm towards the people of Israel, ultimately by, of course, we know Satan as the ultimate enemy of the Lord has been using these. But now he turns from this external enemy, as we're going to see, to this internal enemy enemy uh, of the the Jews themselves so there's a lot happening in the first part of chapter 5 here we're going to cover verses 1 through 13 this morning so let's go and read our text we'll pray and then we'll dive into it so Nehemiah chapter 5 starting in verse 1 now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers for there were those who said with our sons and and our daughters we are many So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. In verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as far as we are able have bought back Our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest return to them this very day their fields their vineyards their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money grain wine and oil that you have been exacting from them then they said we will restore these and require nothing from them we will do as you say and i called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised i also shook out the fold of my garment and said so May God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise so he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. Let's pray. Lord, we do, again, we come to you as we do so often in our services. Lord, we need you. We thank you for this text that you bring us to this morning. And we pray, Lord, that we do not approach it by our wisdom, And our understanding, Lord, but that you would uh, lead us through this text. And by your spirit, Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Would you keep me from error this morning. And may we exalt Christ in his great name. We do pray. Amen. Well, this morning as we come to this text, there is a lot happening. We need to have some understanding. We need to understand what's going on. We need to understand where Nehemiah is at. We need to understand the response. And so I've kind of got this in three different parts, if you will. So I help you just uh, as kind of an outline. We're going to see the rampant sin in the community. We're going to see the rampant sin in the community. We're going to see the righteous anger towards that sin. And then lastly, we're going to look at the restoration of, Of that unity that had been broken. So, first to look at this rampant sin in the community. You see there in verse 1, it just starts out right there in the beginning. Now there arose a great outcry of the people. Now, as we end chapter 4, everyone's linked arm to arm, they're working together, they're defending each other, they're they're following Nehemiah, he's setting the charge, and everything is great. But now there's this outcry, not just an outcry, a great outcry. And even so much where, where it often doesn't always include their wives, it says the people and of their wives. So this really this picture of the whole of the community is outcrying against their Jewish brothers. Now we're going to come back to brothers in just a moment, but this is we're going to see there is rampant sin, this great outcry of all the people that has arisen up to the ears of Nehemiah, this leader of their community. And so and it seems like it would seem that Nehemiah was not aware of what he is about to hear. And so they bring this great outcry to Nehemiah about what's going on in the community. Now let's kind of we need a little help understanding what's happening. We can kind of read that and get a good gist of it. But it's even deeper than what you could possibly think. It is they are committing grievous sins against one another. Now as we look at this sin of the community, I wanna just kinda help you this morning with a little three, two, one. There are three groups of families, two laws being broken and neglected, and one core issue. So three families, two laws, and one issue. Let's look at these three groups of families first. and It, it, it helps us. It clearly uh, delineates these three families. The first one in verse 2, it says, For there arose those who said. And so each of these groups starts with those who said or those who outcried. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So this first group, they're a group that had significant families. It said, we, we are many. And that is not, um, as we know the people of Israel in the Old Testament, it is a good thing to have many people. The problem was, the problem was not that they had too many people in their family. The problem was that the Lord had blessed them with with these great families, with these significant families, and they did not have enough to eat. And so, so we have these great families. Let us get grain that we may eat in the last part there and keep alive. These large families, not enough to eat, and we get this picture of starvation. We get this picture of scarcity, and we know there's a famine going on, as we see in verse 3. But the first family that we see of these three are just saying, we do not have enough to eat. Help us. Now, as you can imagine, it's not just another day for them. They're working on the wall, right? All of Israel, as we see, I believe it's in verse uh, 16. Is it verse 16? Is it verse 17? Um One of the verses, all of Israel, right, there in chapter 4, it said all of Israel had gathered together to build this wall. We we talked last week, 50% were doing this and 50% were doing that. We said 50 plus 50 is all of them, right? So all of Israel's working, and now they're hungry. So they're working on the wall. They're rebuilding of the wall with Nehemiah. They're working uh, as unto the Lord. And they say, we need more food. We need grain, and we can't get it. And the second group here, not only do they have significant families, they have significant debt. It says, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Now, they can eat, but they've, it's cost them everything, right? It says, we, they don't, they're not saying they're going to starve, they're just saying we're going to go broke. Uh, We have no money left. We have mortgaged everything we have. And it mentioned those three things, fields, vineyards, and houses, which represent their land, their work, and their homes. Another way of looking at that, they're all of their life, right? So where they live, the the property that they own, and the means by which they provide for their family in these vineyards. They had mortgaged everything for grain to eat. And now they said, we can't do any more, Nehemiah, and we too are about to be amongst those who are going to starve. Help us! We have nothing left to mortgage. Then we see this third group. So the first group they have significant families. The second group they have significant debt, and now this third group they are paying some significant taxes. We don't see the issue is their. Uh, we don't see the issue is grain for them and food, but it says. Uh, the fourth group there, and, and, we, and there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax. Now you can go back to Nehemiah. I mean, go back to Ezra. and We see this king's tax several times. Um, there's, there's taxes on all these things. But we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And so they have to pay this tax bill, and they have done everything they can do. They've mortgaged their stuff, they've borrowed money, and they have even enslaved their children in order to overcome this debt. And they said, we can't handle this anymore, Nehemiah. So you see the outcry from the people to Nehemiah. They're bringing this before their their newish leader to say, look at what's going on. Look at the problem that we find ourselves in. And this is not a problem from outside. It is a problem from inside. The helpless and hopeless state of the poor class of Israel finds themselves um, not imposed by their enemies, but imposed by their fellow Israelites, their brothers. Now, there's this there's this recurring theme, this repetition through these first 13 verses. I actually missed circling one as I was working through this. One, two, three, four, five. There's six times that we see the word brother, and even more times that we see kind of a uh, a, a hint of brother. But the actual word brother of brother shows up six times in these 13 verses. In verse 1, where it says that... Um, the great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now, they could have said all kinds of things, right? They could have said against the Jewish nobles and the Jewish leaders, uh, as we see in, in chapter 4. They could have identified that differently, but their outcry is against their brothers. We see this picture. There should be unity, right? You should have unity amongst brothers, but there is disunity here. You should have love to, and with brothers, but we see, honestly, we see some hatred towards these brothers. And so the outcry was against the Jewish brothers. We see there in verse 5 now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. I mean, we're of the same people. Our children are the same. We are of the same community. We are of the same blood. And then we'll see later on as we get into verse uh, 6, 7, and 8, uh, and 9 again, this idea of brothers. And so it is this, it is the, the picture is clear. The issue is not from outside, it is with inside. And it is the tragedy of chapter 5 that the sins committed against Israel are at the hands of Israel. Most times we see Israel being attacked and Israel um, having the problems they have. It is from the outside, but this time it is themselves. The sins committed against Israel are from the hands of Israel. The unity that we saw while they were building the wall is not present here. When you see in verse 16 of chapter 4, From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and the coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. So you see not just this picture of all of them working together, but even the leadership or are behind them, are supporting them. But this is not what we see in chapter 5. We see this disunity in chapter 5, where we saw unity in chapter 4. There should be no group in all of the world that is more united than God's people. Let me say that again. There should be no group in all of the world more united than God's people. We say, well, I've got a close family i right, say, so I've, I've been in my work for 35 years and we're the closest group that you can imagine. Or you can say, my, my sorority, my fraternity, fill in the blank with every, whatever close group that you may have. There should be no closer group in all of the kingdom and all of humanity than the people of God. This was the strength of Israel in the Old Testament and it is the strength of the church today. Yes, we know Christ is our true strength, but he has chosen to bring us together. And last week we spent a good bit of time with the one another's of Scripture. If you remember, there are 59 one another's in the New Testament of how the church and what the church should do one to another. I want to take you to three passages. I don't think we went to these last week. If we did, you need to repeat. Uh, John chapter 13. John 13, verse 34 and 35, this new commandment that Jesus gives, in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And as we read Nehemiah 5, does it seem like the people of God are demonstrating love one to another? No, they are not. And we'll dig into that more in just a moment. But we are to have love one for another. Galatians 6 2. You don't have to the turn there. It just says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We should love one another and carry one another's burdens. Are they carrying one another's burdens in the Old Testament? In Nehemiah chapter 5? No, they're actually imposing more burdens on their brothers and sisters. So they're not loving one another. They're not carrying one another's burdens. Our love for one another is an outworking of our love for Christ. Go with me to 1 John. We were talking in our youth uh, Sunday morning Bible study this morning. We were recapping the end of the New Testament. And we said that the theme of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John John is love and how we love one another. So 1st John 4, I want to read a lengthy passage here, seven to 21. I want to read it kind of fast. But I want us to get this big picture. Beloved. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may be confident, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is, because. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I know it's a lengthy text, but it's so good and it's so clear. As you walk away from that, you cannot help but to understand what John is saying. That if you belong to the Lord, you will love one another. You will love God's people. You will care for God's people. And when you don't, there is a problem. And this is the problem that we see in Nehemiah, that there is a disconnect with their love. The Jews were not demonstrating love for their brothers and sisters. So these are the three groups. This is kind of an issue that's going on This ultimately boils down to love and how they're loving one another and caring for one another and carrying their burdens, but also the two laws specifically that are being broken and neglected. So when you go back to uh, to, to the beginning of five here We see two laws that are being broken And neglected The first one is this Is loaning money with interest to fellow Jews We you say loaning money Is not a bad thing John do work at a bank I hope it's not a bad thing They're turning in my resignation tomorrow no, as we'll see, loans in and of themselves are not bad, especially in the commercial sense. This is not the point of the text, but there is a specific law not about making loans in general, not about uh, charging interest in general, but charging interest specifically to the people of God. A few places, you don't have to turn to a couple of these. Uh, you can go and uh, start working towards Deuteronomy. But Exodus twenty two twenty five says this, if you lend money to any of my people, so he's speaking to the Jews, if you lend money to any of my people with you, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So he's saying that he's talking to the Jewish people. He says, you will not lend money to other Jewish people who are poor and in need. So that's important to remember. Now when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 23, Some of this will seem a little redundant, but I want want us to get the point. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest. He said, go after the other guys, but you're not going to charge your fellow Israelites interest. But you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And so the issue here is not this general principle of loans and interest. It is taking advantage of people in need and making a profit doing so, most specifically amongst God's people. Said so you cannot. This is sin for a, a, a Jew in the Old Testament to charge another Jew interest. We see in one case specifically those who are poor in need. In another case, for anything. So you are not to be making money on your fellow brothers and sisters and the Lord. This was the idea of unity that they were to have. That if they had a burden, they were to help with that burden and not add to that burden. This concept that we're speaking of is the concept of usury. Usury, just to give you a definition from another author, says this Usury isn't charging interest on a loan to offset the risk of the loan and the cost of foregoing other uses for the money. Usury is unjustly charging someone for a loan by exploiting them when they are in dire straits. And so, what we see clearly in Nehemiah 5 the people of God are in dire straits. They're in dire straits, they are some about to starve, about to go broke, have put their children in slavery, and the other Jewish people are not helping them. They're just charging interest and racking the bill up. So this concept of usury is, is exploiting the people of God. So many of these Jews, they were absolutely in dire straits, at the risk of starving. The upper class took advantage of this and loaned them money so that they could eat and, ex- and exact a high interest. Secondly, not only do we see this law being broken of usury and of, of charging an interest to the fellow Jews, we also see them taking fellow Israelites as slaves. Now, if you were to really stretch it, first when you could say, okay, I get it, it's business, they have some, others don't have some, they they're, they're making money. They shouldn't do that. It's sin. You could probably rationalize that in your head. You shouldn't, but maybe you could. But this second one we can't even fathom, right? It says they are taking their fellow Israelites into slavery. As hard as that is to imagine, they were buying, selling, and taking their brothers and sisters as slaves. And it should be no surprise. It's not good. This is clearly forbidden in the law of God. Go with me to Leviticus chapter twenty-five. Go back to Deuteronomy and go back to a couple books to the left. Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five, I believe starting in verse thirty-five. We're going to see a little bit of a repeat of what we just read, with a little bit of more emphasis. Leviticus twenty-five, starting in verse thirty-five. It says if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you so this is a whole different concept than we see in Nehemiah 5 right someone needs help you help them out immensely take no interest from him or profit but fear your God that your brother may live beside you you should not lend him your money and interest not give him your food for profit nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So he reminds them what he has done for them. You should not do this because look at what I did for you. I took you as a people out of Egypt. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve you as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants for whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. So we see clearly that God has given them laws. Okay, there are going to be times where my people are going to fall on hard times. They're going to come to you, but you're not to receive them as a slave. You should hire them as a worker, pay for them, and he gives them this whole plan of how they should handle their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord who needed help. But this is not what the Jews in Nehemiah 5 are doing. They are taking their fellow Israelites as slaves. And this is clearly forbidden in the law of God, and it's exactly what's being done. And you get on to verse 8, just to skip down there for a moment, and you see even more clearly, so you see in verse 8, uh, we'll just start in verse, halfway through verse 7. You were exacting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nation. So just pause there for a moment. So Nehemiah, he's saying privately out of my own funds, I have been buying back these Jewish slaves so they can return to the house of God. But you even sell your brothers, and there's that word again, right? Brothers, you sell your brothers that you may be so that they may be sold to us. I mean, do you get how horrible this is? They are selling their fellow um, Jews so that Nehemiah can buy them back. This is terrible. They are taking their 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 fellow Israelites as slaves. They were treating them as poorly as you can possibly be treated. They were violating the word of God. And not only was Israel violating God's law, but they were exploiting their own. And that's the core issue of this, this first part of, uh, from verse 1 through verse 5. So we've got these three families, these two laws, and this one core issue that Israel was violating God's law by exploiting God's people. This is at the heart of what's going on. They are in contempt of both, in contempt of a holy God and His commands and His laws and His instructions and all that He has said to do, and in contempt of their brothers and sisters, their nieces and their nephews, or their family, of these who, like them, follow the Lord. So they are charging this usury tax, and now they are taking them as slaves. And they were violating God's law and exploiting God's people. Now comes to verse 6, this very interesting verse. So you kind of got to get the weight of all that's going on in the house of Israel, especially when you compare to, uh, to chapter 4, the, the way chapter 4 ends. Everybody's linked arm to arm. They're working together. They're, they're accomplishing the task before them. And now Nehemiah hears all of this. And he says, I was very Angry? Could you imagine? I mean, I don't know what the words you could you could use, but can you imagine how angry Nehemiah was when he heard how the people of Israel were treating the people of Israel? How they were violating God's law and exploiting God's people? I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So he had righteous anger when this news comes to Nehemiah. He has righteous anger towards their sin. So our first point was that we see the rampant sin in the community. Secondly, we see this righteous anger towards sin. And Nehemiah had every right to be angry. In fact, it would have been sinful for him not to be angry. It had been sinful for him just to sit back and say, well, that'll be fixed in time. But no, he was angry. had this righteous anger because had he not been, he would have been complicit with the people of Israel who were violating God's law and exploiting God's people but how did he respond to that fit of righteous anger anger comes over him and this is righteous anger and if we could just take a quick moment to talk about righteous anger what is righteous anger did you know that you can be angry as a believer and not sin don't get too excited some of you i can see your head right now good i can be justified in my anger this week the preacher said righteous anger so what is righteous anger we see Nehemiah here expressing righteous anger. We see Moses angry with Israel whenever he comes down off the mountain the first time and they are again committing themselves to sin and to idols. We see Elijah angry at the prophets of Baal. We see Paul was angry, and I love the language it uses, and his, his spirit was provoked inside of him. So Paul was angry at the idols in Athens that he found. Jesus himself was angry in the temple at the money changers and his was not just this like oh i'm angry he sat there and braided a whip right and in his anger was righteous anger so yes there is a righteous anger paul tells us in your anger do not sin so we know that you can both be angry and not sin the issue is is that it's not easy to exhibit righteous anger and not to sin in the midst of your anger. What I'm saying is, most of us can't do it because usually we're not angry righteously; we are angry unrighteously. Righteous anger is being angry when God is wronged versus whenever you are wronged. Whenever God is wrong and you're at and you're angered at that, that is righteous anger. But whenever you're wronged and you're, you have been oppressed or you have been felt done wronged. That is unrighteous anger. A couple of definitions I think help. Unrighteous anger stems from personal grievances, selfish motives, jealousy, envy, or other sinful desires rather than from a desire to uphold justice or righteousness. It is characterized by a lack of control, a desire to harm, a motivation that is not aligned with God's principles and love. Whereas righteous anger refers to a form of anger that is motivated by an injustice or a wrongdoing, particularly when it contradicts God's laws or principles. It's considered righteous because it stems from a desire to, hold, to uphold goodness, truth, and justice. So this is the righteous anger that overwhelms and just floods over Nehemiah when he says, I was very angry. He wasn't angry that he was wronged. He was angry that God was wronged. This is the anger of Nehemiah. But he doesn't act rashly. Even in your righteous anger, we could still sin, right? In your anger, do not sin. So even in righteous anger, you know, he could have done all kinds of things, right? He said, all these nobles, just fire them, get rid of them. He said, could he go hang them, you know, go build a, um, you know, go build a platform and go hang these folks, run them out of town. He could have done all kinds of things, but he didn't. He stopped. He stopped. He doesn't act ra- uh, rashly. He demonstrates what we call today, I'm going to use a fancy word here, emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence. say, so what is that? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. I read a book recently on emotional intelligence. And we know that emotional intelligence, we know that what we're about to talk about it is not anything new. We're going to see it in Nehemiah because the Spirit of God dwells inside of him. So what does he do? He gets angry, and then he takes counsel with himself. That's a funny way to say it, right? And you may be in your mind saying he just sits here and talks to himself. Hey, Nehemiah, should you be angry? I don't know. Let's think about it. It's not that kind of counsel, right? He takes a step back. He takes a moment. He processes it. And as Nehemiah, as we've already seen him with his arrows of prayer, that he's praying to the Lord. Surely he's going to the Lord. He takes counsel with himself. He thinks about what's going on. And so although this term emotional intelligence is coined in the mid-20th century and it's most commonly used in business settings, it's nothing new. It is the ability to take in the situation, to be aware of your emotional state and control your actions, not falling apart when things don't go as expected. Some of you need to hear that. And by some of you, all of us need to hear that, right? All of us, even in our righteous anger anger, we can act rashly as believers we know that this work is not done by our ability it's not done by reading business books it's not done by meditation it's not done by a timeout it's done by the Holy Spirit that is at work inside of us to be able to respond rightly to these things that cause righteous anger spiritual growth comes from the continual submission to the Spirit and regularly letting go of of our fleshly instincts many people myself included could use growth in this area so Nehemiah takes counsel with himself he's very angry when he heard this and he, take counsel with myself and then he promptly responds and four quick things he responds he brings charges against the nobles and officials he comes immediately to them and says I brought charges against the nobles and officials and I said to them you are exacting interest from uh, each from his brother. So right there at the heart of it, it. says, your brother, your fellow Jew, you are doing wrong to. You're exacting interest. And they knew that it was wrong, especially when he connected them to their brother. So he brings charges to the nobles and officials. These are the ones, these nobles and officials, they are the ones who are exploiting the needy. Secondly, he holds an assembly against them. He doesn't just say, guys, you need know, to stop. He brings an assembly, it says. He says, uh, and I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations and you even sell your brothers, they may be sold to us. So he he holds an assembly against them. He brings indictment against them and all of those in the court. And the response was that, crickets. you could hear a pin drop in that great assembly. He says, no one could say a word not a single word. And their silence verifies their guilt. And thirdly, he calls them to repentance. He calls them to repentance. So I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover I my brothers and my servants Are lending the money and grain Let us abandon these, this exacting of interest And so he calls them to repentance To walk with the Lord To be set apart from the other nations And then he even admits his own guilt We see that he has some part of this as well When he says Moreover I and my brothers and my servants Are lending them money and grain And he says let us Abandon this exacting of of interest. So as this leader of Israel, he's even open and honest enough to say that he has a part in this too and that let us let us as a community repent. So he calls them to repentance. And then forth, fourthly, he demands an immediate restoration to be made. He says return to them this very day. He didn't say let's circle back. He didn't say let's make a plan. He didn't say let's institute some law. He says today. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting them. He says, return everything today. Make restoration. So he charges them and brings them against an assembly. He calls them to repentance, and he calls for restoration. Are God's people still at risk today of being exploited Unfortunately, yes, we still see the exploitation of God's people by, I'm going to put in quotes, God's people. We still see this in the church today. Just a few examples of things that I've witnessed over the years in churches, both far and near. We see financial exploitation. We see leaders and churches often wrongly emphasize money and pressure their people to give in the promise of God's divine favor. And they do so for their own gain at the expense of the people. And that is sinful. And that should be repented of and stopped. We see spiritual abuse. We see leaders who exploit their people by abuse of their authority in the church. People are coerced into behavior and actions under the guise of obedience to God. That if you will follow me and do me, which is sinful, um, leading them down a sinful path, you are actually obeying God. And so they abuse them and exploit them through this means. Elitism. Leaders in churches that exclude certain groups based on their socioeconomic status and other reasons. They show favor to those they have a preference for. So we see the exploitation of God's people even today. And these things ought not to be, but yet they are. Men and women have experienced pain and suffering from the church. And if this is you, know this. It is not Christ who has wronged you, but people. And I hope not even God's people. I hope wolves who are in sheep's clothing. I pray that these people, these church leaders, these churches, I pray they're called out for their exploitation of God's people. That they repent and they turn to the Lord as, the people, as the, the Israel does in Nehemiah 5. And so lastly, we don't just see the rampant sin in the community. don't just see the righteous anger towards his sin but lastly we see the restoration of unity so when he calls them to repent he calls them to restore uh, these on this very day and they say in verse 12 and they said we will restore these and require nothing from them we will do as you say so their response was affirmative their response was looking to the Lord ultimately and trusting him. They were responding in faith. They were responding. And it says there, as we see at the end, the people did as they had promised. It wasn't just an empty promise. Okay, let's just say this and get Nehemiah out of here and get back to our usury and slavery. And it's not what happens. And so it seems in chapter 5. But there is a restoration of unity. There is a restoration of the brotherhood where they agree to stop, to cease, and to restore and so they restore what they have taken from the people of Israel. And so when you and then when you look at how this the, the, the passage ends, he said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then we see how Nehemiah wraps this up. He, he does so with some accountability, and we see how it ends. He said, I call the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. So Nehemiah wanted to make sure that the people of God were restored. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. And so this, this hope, this confrontation, if you will, that Nehemiah had against the people of God, this confrontation of their sin, it ultimately was about restoration. Confrontation about sin should always be about restoration. Now we can all often we go to Matthew eighteen, turn me to Colossians instead, Colossians chapter one. But the point of the confrontation of sin is restoration. We see it in Matthew eighteen. We also see it in Colossians chapter one. Colossians one nineteen. Should I hate when you write down the wrong passage? It's been a few months since I've done this. There we go. We'll start in nineteen. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And in verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." So we see this is what Christ is going to do for those who are in him, for those that he has died for and that he has reconciled in his flesh and that he has made blameless and above reproach. We don't do those things on our own. He does those for us in his body and blood. And if indeed you continue in the faith, meaning if you continue to demonstrate that you are his, because if you are his, you will always be his, then you'll be found stable and steadfast and not shifting. And there will be this restoration. And so there we see this picture that if you are gods and you are confronted with sin, what you will always go towards is restoration. And we see in Nehemiah 5, this group, this is exactly what they go towards is restoration, towards repentance, towards the Lord, towards praising the Lord. They did not reject Nehemiah. They did not condemn Nehemiah. They listened to Nehemiah and ultimately listened to the Lord. The reason that we can be restored to unity, even in the midst of sin, is because of Christ. Only he makes us holy, righteous, and blameless. Without Christ, we remain guilty. But let us look to him who is able to forgive us, save us, and hold us firm. As we close today, let us carry with us this weighty lesson of Nehemiah chapter 5. In the face of internal conflict and exploitation, Nehemiah's righteous anger and wise leadership remind us of the transformative power of God's justice and His mercy. Like Nehemiah, we are called not just to confront sin, but to pursue restoration with a spirit of humility and compassion. Let us be vigilant against the modern-day injustices, that threaten our fellowship with us and the Lord, always striving to embody the love, justice, and mercy that Jesus demonstrates. As we leave today and start towards this new week, I pray that we could be ambassadors of reconciliation, bearing the message of Christ's love and the hope of his restoration. May we reflect his light in everything we do In everything we say Every thought that we have Constantly and continually drawing closer To the unity and the peace In the church and in Christ Let's pray Lord I thank you for this morning I thank you for this text I thank you for an opportunity to To look at unity And peace And restoration Lord I don't know how you can use this in all of our hearts and lives, but you do. And I just pray by your spirit that we would have heard this and that we'll respond to it in faith. And may we as a church desire to love one another, carry one another's burdens, be there for one another, and be at peace with one another. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And as we sing this morning, as we come to the table, as we have an opportunity to give, even as we have an opportunity to, to fellowship together and at the same time support the work of your mission, for that all these things will be done the spirit of unity in the name of Christ.